Wow, God is good, isn't he? God is so good. Yeah, let's just praise him. So many days when I'm, uh, it's my turn to come up and speak, I just want to keep singing and praising God. So grateful for all your voices behind me, and I just, I always get a little sense that, that this is just like a little foretaste of what we get to do in heaven. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Well, we have the privilege this morning of gathering around God's Word together, so uh, take your Bible or a pew Bible if you didn't bring one. Just knocked my mic right off myself there. Uh, Turn to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're spending time this summer looking at Jesus and his encounters with the people that were around him and situations that he encountered. And we're kind of going back to the, almost the beginning of his ministry here in John chapter 2. This is uh, the wedding at Cana. So listen, this is God's word for us today. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars, each used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. Now when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This, This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Lord, as we look into your word, we trust your spirit to come and be our teacher, to come and open our hearts, open our ears, God, we really want it to be your voice that we hear. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One of the, uh, the fun things about being a pastor is that I get to be a part of a lot of weddings. And after, I think I'm in my 19th year, I probably got a lot of stories that I could tell about weddings and so often, 
at least a little something goes wrong at a wedding. You know what I mean? There's the groom that faints, or the flower girls that get in a fight during the ceremony, or the bride's veil that catches on fire. If I had known we were gonna be inside, I would have shown you this video. This didn't happen at one of the weddings I did, but I, I saw a video once of the, the pastor. He was taking the rings from the best man, and he went to give them to the groom, and he tripped, and he fell forward, and this wedding was happening like right at the edge of a swimming pool. Like, imagine this was the pool, and this was the wedding party, and <laughs> the pastor trips, falls right into the bride, pushes her into the pool, <laughs> and then falls right on top of her. <laughs> no one ever forgot that wedding, I bet. <laughs> Sometimes weddings just have unexpected things that happen. Well, in our story today, Jesus is at a wedding. It says here in John chapter 2 that uh, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, in Galilee. Galilee was kind of his home territory, and Cana is just a little village that we don't know much else about. Um, and it says Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were there as well. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's probably got about five disciples, um, maybe not all 12 yet. So they're there, and he hasn't done any miracles yet. He's just at the very beginning of his ministry. Weddings in, in Jesus' day were a big deal. I mean, they're a big deal now, but they were a big deal then. According to uh, the Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish teaching, the wedding would take place on a Wednesday, unless the bride was a widow, and then it would take place on a Thursday, and uh, the bride, the groom and his friends would make their way in procession to the bride's house, and this would often happen at night, so there could be a dramatic torchlight procession, and they would get to the bride's house and be met by all the, the bridesmaids and the bride, and then there would be speeches and expressions of goodwill, and then the bride and the groom and the whole party would process and make their way back to the groom's house. There was undoubtedly a religious ceremony, although we really don't have records about that. And uh, then there was the banquet. And the wedding banquet would last not just for a few hours or, you know, in, in our context, a, a long wedding reception would, would start maybe at 2 in the afternoon and go all the way to midnight. This wedding reception would have lasted up to a week. Can you imagine a week of just hanging out and partying all together? This was a big deal. It's a big celebration. Jesus is there with his family and his disciples. Isn't it neat to think that Jesus goes to celebrations just like the rest of us? Big family celebrations. Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding reception. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, I got, I got holier work to do. I can't waste my time having fun at a party. He's right there celebrating along with everyone else. You know what I think that tells us about God? 
that God is a God of joy and celebration. If you look throughout the scripture, God is always planning festivals and feasts for his people. He is a God of joy and celebration. You know, Billy Joel was famous for saying, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners are much more fun. I think Jesus is telling us something different here, that God is a God of joy and celebration, and that's, he's right at home here at this wedding reception. I wonder what it would be like if we invited Jesus to all our parties. A lot of us grew up saying a table grace that began with the words, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. And if you pray that prayer around the table like I did growing up, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. What would it be like if we invited Jesus to all our celebrations and made them a place where he would feel right at home. I think he would love that. I think we would love what that was like. So Jesus is right at home here at this celebration. In fact, he even talked about his ministry later like it was a wedding reception. There's something about the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God, that is really hiding closely with joy and celebration. In Mark chapter 2, John's disciples, um, it says, and the Pharisees were often fasting. So people came to Jesus, it says in 2.18, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and those of the Pharisees? And Jesus answered, can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? As long as he is with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. In a certain sense, the kingdom of God, the presence of Jesus, just brings with it joy and celebration. Tony Campolo is famous for saying that the kingdom of God is a party. And there are places all through scripture where it looks forward to that day when Christ will come again and make all things new. And the descriptions often sound a lot like a party. This is what Isaiah 25 says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of well-aged wine strained clear. God is a God of joy and celebration. Friends, that... That is essential to God's heart. So Jesus is right at home here at this wedding. And like many weddings, uh, something goes wrong at this one. The wine supply runs out during the festivities. It says in verse 3 that Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they have no more wine. The implication here is this is a problem. This is, this is embarrassing. See, running out of, of wine too early, it, it wasn't just embarrassing. It was really, for, for this situation, kind of a disaster. Um, wine isn't just a nice part of the celebration here. It's a sign of the harvest. It's a sign of God's abundance of joy and gladness and, and hospitality. 
So when they run short on wine, they run short on blessing. And that's a bad symbol to start their, their wedding, to start their married life with. Kind of like the wedding I went to once where the bride and groom couldn't get the unity candle lit. That candle would not light. <laughs> not good symbolism there. <laughs> so running out of wine, it, it's a bad sign. It also is it was a failure of hospitality, which it's hard for us to understand, but in their culture was not just embarrassing, it was really shameful to not be able to offer the hospitality they'd planned. And even I read that they could get in legal trouble. The groom's family could be subject to being sued by the bride's family for not providing the proper celebration for the wedding. So this is a problem. And you know, isn't it neat to think that it was a humble Galilean family, to save a humble Galilean family from hurt, that Jesus put forth his power, that Jesus did his first miracle. It was in sympathy, in kindness, in understanding for regular people and their real lives that he did his first miracle. And I think that's so helpful to know in our lives, when things don't go as planned. You know, sometimes we have been taught to think of God like somebody important sitting behind a big desk with hundreds of telephones that are all ringing with important requests, and and God can only answer so many at a time, so we don't want to bother him with our requests. But, But Jesus is showing us here something very different. That God cares about the big things in our lives, but he cares about the small things. He cares about however things are not going as planned in our lives. And we can always reach out to him. So Mary seems to be telling Jesus, they are out of wine, like with a purpose. You can just kind of imagine the look that she's giving him. Son, they're out of wine right? I wish we could uh, have the story filled in a little bit more, but she seems to have an expectation that that they'll do something. When Bill and I got married, it was the 26th of October, and it was, you know, western New York, so we thought it would be probably snowing and at least really cold. And so for our wedding reception, we planned a whole lot of hot cider, because what's better in the fall on a cold day than a nice cup of hot cider. And we bought gallons and gallons of hot cider. And we also made a little bit of mocha punch because we figured, well, some people will want something cool to drink, but most people will want hot cider. And on our wedding day, it was 85 degrees. (laughs) It was 85 degrees, and the mocha punch ran out before we even got to the reception. Now, I'm imagining the conversation in the kitchen with our kitchen help. I bet nobody looked at someone else and said, create more. (laughs) Why would Mary think that? They ran to the store and got some more ingredients for our mocha punch. But you kind of get the feeling that's not what Mary had in mind here. It doesn't spell it out, and I wish it did, because it would be so interesting to know 
what's going on, but you get the idea that Mary has something else in mind. After all, she knew Jesus better than anyone else. She had seen the miraculous circumstances around his birth. She knew about those angels that had come to the shepherds and sent them to come visit Jesus. She knew about John the Baptist's miraculous birth as well and the, the way that John had a message that identified Jesus as the promised Messiah. So Jesus hasn't performed any miracles yet, and we don't know for certain that she expects one, but from what she does know, it's certainly possible that she expects something out of the ordinary. She looks at Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus answered her as interesting. Verse 4, dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Dear woman, or some translations just say woman. Jesus uses this way of addressing his mother, which to our ears sounds a little bit awkward or maybe somewhat rude. He uses it two times in the Gospel of John, right here at the beginning of his ministry and then one more time right at the end when he's hanging on the cross. It says in John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. So it was a, a very tender way of addressing her. Uh, not a term of disrespect as it might sound to our ears. And depending on what translation you read this, this little exchange in, it gives it somewhat different nuances. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Some of them say, uh, dear woman, what, why do you involve me? Or woman, what does that have to do with us? Or woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Literally, Jesus asked, what to me and to you, woman? That's hard to translate. What to me and to you, woman? I think probably the, the uh, New Living does as good a job as any is saying, that's not our problem. He seems to be, his main point seems to be, my time has not yet come. Usually throughout this gospel, when Jesus talks about my time, he's talking about his suffering and his death, what he came here to do. The dialogue leaves some unanswered questions here, but we can tell that Mary takes from this exchange that Jesus is going to do something. So she goes right over to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Now, it seems like Mary uh, might have been family or, or friends with the bride and groom. We don't know who the bride and groom are, but Mary seems to be somewhat in charge of the arrangements. After all, she noticed before almost anyone else did that they were out of wine, and she gives the servants uh, instruction, and they seem to be willing to take instructions from her. Do whatever he tells you, she tells the servants. Do whatever he tells you. You know, that's good advice for us. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. It says later in this gospel, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. 
Sometimes we make following Jesus really complicated, and it can be really complex, but at a very simple level, it often comes down to just doing what he tells us out of love for him. Do whatever he tells you. Leon Morris says this, duties are ours, events are God's. It is ours to fill the water pots. It is Christ's to make the water wine. How is he going to turn the water into wine if, the, if the, the servants don't fill those pots full of water? Sometimes what he wants us to do is just fill the water jars and see what he's got going next. Do whatever he tells you. Sometimes we want to wait for God to give us something big to do, you know, something life-changing and exciting, and we think, then I'll be full of faith. But Jesus says, if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the large things. If you're dishonest in the little things, you won't be honest in greater responsibilities. Rick Warren says there will always be more people willing to do great things for God than there, are willing, than there are people willing to do the little things. The race to be a leader is crowded, but the field is wide open for those willing to be servants. Do whatever he tells you. Maybe your next faithful step is to fill the water pots. Do it. Do it. Like that little boy who brought his five loaves and two fish to Jesus. That was just a little lunch. But look what Jesus did with that. Look what he did with this water. So they're standing nearby these six stone water jars, and they're big. They're, the, they're used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And it says here in verse 6 that each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. And they're big stone uh, water jars. So Jesus tells the servants, Fill the jars with water. They're, you can't move these big water jars, these stone things, and like take them down to the spring and fill them up. He means like go get buckets or whatever they use, jars, and fill them with water and dump them into these water jars so that they'll be completely full. This is a lot of water he's preparing here. A lot of water. And so they do that. It says when the jars have been filled... Jesus said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Jesus doesn't wave his hand over the water. He doesn't say, be changed. He doesn't do anything dramatic, just very quietly, maybe because he said his time had not yet come, very quietly, he tells the servants, fill these up, now take some and show it to the guy in charge of the food and the wine, the master of ceremonies. He just very quietly makes this miracle happen. And isn't it interesting that it was those servants, the ones at the edge of the celebration, who got to see this miracle? Probably none of the guests knew what had happened. Even the master of ceremonies, it says, didn't know where this wine came from. But the servants got to see. The ones who did what he told them to do, they were in a position to see God's transforming power 
at work. They were like the shepherds who got to be the first ones who hear of Jesus' birth. And, and we see this throughout the Gospels, that, that it's the ones at the edges, the ones who don't have advantages in life, that Jesus especially pays attention to and especially gives his gifts to. So whether these servants ever got to taste that good wine or not, they got to go home that night with the dawning recognition that in the simple act of saving a party, the world itself was about to change in Jesus Christ. Indeed, in Jesus, the world itself was about to change. So when the master of ceremonies, it says in verse 9, tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Verse 10, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Jesus creates not just enough wine to get them through the party, but an abundance of wine, an abundance. And he creates not just good enough wine, but the best wine. What does this tell us about the heart of God? That God is such a God of abundance and grace, such a God of grace. The word grace occurs only four times in this gospel, and only in that opening prologue in verses 1 through 18 of, of chapter 1. Why is that? Well, one could argue that, uh, that John's source for the prologue was an, a hymn that already existed and that John took that and incorporated that into his uh, first chapter there. But what if, as biblical scholar Carolyn Lewis suggests, what if we look at this, look at it this way? Once the word became f flesh, the rest of the gospel shows us what grace tastes like and smells like and feels like and sounds like. That is, Jesus' signs, which is what miracles are called all through the gospel of John, the signs that Jesus does show us, not, not tell us about, but show us what grace is really like abundant grace from his fullness it says in chapter 1 verse 16 we have all received grace upon grace that is an amazing gift turning water into wine is revealing God's abundant grace and what does abundant grace taste like it tastes like the best wine when you were expecting the cheap stuff. That's what this story is all about. There is transforming power in Jesus. The grace of Jesus is transforming. This is a true story. Two pastors were on their way to Atlanta, Georgia, for a large Christian gathering. One of them had never been in the South before. They spent the night in a hotel and then went to a nearby restaurant for breakfast. And when the waitress uh, uh, delivered their meals, this pastor who'd never been in the South before saw this white, mushy-looking stuff on his plate. 
but he didn't know what it was. And so when the waitress came by again, he said to her, what is this? And she said, it's grits. And he said, ma'am, I didn't order it, and I'm not paying for it. And she said, sir, down here you don't order it, and you don't pay for it, you just get it. (laughs) That is like the grace of God. You don't order it, you don't pay for it, you just get it. Grace is like grits. Now that's what I should have named this sermon. Grace is like grits. Oh, that just came to me right now. (laughs) Well, maybe we can all remember that then. Grace is like grits. We don't order it, we don't pay for it. We just get it. That's what God is showing us here through Jesus Christ. Grace happens when the wedding is running on empty and Jesus brings you the best wine ever. Not just one bottle full, but gallons and gallons, like 50-gallon drums full of the best wine ever. That's what the story is all about. There is transforming power in Jesus. The grace of Jesus has the power to transform you and me and this world in which we live. And isn't that good news? I don't know where you might be running on empty today. Maybe your faith is running on empty. Maybe it's a faith that only has sort of good memories and what happened long ago. And that time back at summer camp or that one worship service way back, it only has the fumes of that to run on. Maybe your faith is running on empty and you need some grace. You need to experience the living God in your life. Maybe your life itself seems to be running on empty and Like that wedding, things are not going the way you planned. This is not where you thought you would be at this point in your life. And you're wondering, where's God in all this? Maybe your hope for this world is running on empty. For our country, this is a hard time we're living in. Whether we look close to home or look far away at Syria and Africa and there is so much to make us say, God, what, what are you going to do with this crisis? We're running on empty here. How are we going to get through this? Maybe you just need some more power in your life. The power of hope, the power of prayer, the power of wisdom. There is power transforming power in Jesus Christ. The grace of God is available to each and every one of us. That's what Jesus is all about here, turning this water into wine. And I'm not talking today about some kind of impersonal transaction, like like getting your gas tank filled. I'm talking about a relationship with the living God. Just one chapter before this, story in, in, in John 2. John 1, John says this, but to all who received him, 
it's talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. That's the offer, that we can become children of God. He says, children who were born not out of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of a man, but born of God. That is good news. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There is transforming power in God's amazing grace, and it's available to everyone, to you, for the first time or for the thousandth time. John ends this story with this little, this little sentence. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now we see what John was teaching us. Every story tells us not something uh, that Jesus did once and never did again, but something which Jesus is forever doing, something that Jesus is doing again and again, now even here in this room today. John tells us not something that Jesus did way back there in Palestine, not just that, although that did happen, but of things that he still does today. What John wants us to see here is not just that Jesus once turned some pots of water into wine. If that's all we leave with today, we will have missed the point. He wants us to see that whenever Jesus comes into a person's life, there is transforming power at work. There is transforming power in Jesus. That's what the story is all about, the transforming power of God's amazing grace. It says here that this was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Glory. That's what we see when we see God going to work in our lives. We see God doing amazing things, and we give him the glory. When Jesus comes into a person's life, there is transforming power. The one who turned water into wine can bring death to life for you, for me, for every neighbor out there, even for this broken world we, lived in, we live in. And it says the very last thing, his disciples believed in him. Friends, that's what we want today, too. We want something that will help us believe in him. John says at the end of this gospel that he wrote this so that we would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. That is what this is all about, that we might believe in him and have life in his name. And believing in him is not just a mental checklist. Yeah, I think that's probably true. It's putting our lives in his hand 
It's trusting in him. It's saying, Jesus, wherever you go, I'm going to follow. Here's my life. It belongs to you. There was a United Methodist bishop who was being interviewed and, and asked, when did you give your life to Christ? And he said, well, the latest time was this morning. Friends, that's my invitation to you too. You want to give your life to Christ? Let his transforming power be at work in you. Maybe you've done this a hundred times before, a thousand times before, but today is a new day. And he has something new for each of us. Maybe you've never done this before. And today is your day to step over the line from death to life. If that is the case, please be sure you tell someone after this service, someone who will be able to really rejoice with you that you did that today. There's transforming power in Jesus. Let's ask him to come and do his work in us. God, in so many ways, we are just like that water. Nothing special, nothing elaborate, nothing glorious but you see glory in each of us. You see amazing things in each of us. You love each of us as if there were only one of us. God, what better thing could we do than put our lives in your hands? What better place could we live than in the safety of your grace and power. God, it is so tempting to want to do things our own way, to want to manage our own lives. And often it's only when things really hit a rough spot, when the wine runs out, that we turn to you and say, now what? Oh God, give us the grace right now and every day to let your transforming power take hold of us fully. Jesus, we are all in, and we hold nothing back from you today. Here's our lives, Lord. Take them and do some amazing work in us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.